Open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to move ahead to the next uh, section of text here. We have so far covered only the first three verses. We've been in it just for a couple of weeks here. And uh, we're going to finish the rest of chapter 1 today. Before I uh, jump into the message time itself, however, I want to just make a couple of comments, uh, two things that are particularly sticking in my mind this morning. And uh, the first is this, uh, just to communicate as your pastor to you as uh, the body that the Lord has given to me to shepherd. Uh, it, I was, uh, I want to be careful I say this because I don't, I, don't I don't want any bad feelings to come out even out of this, but I, I was made aware this week that it's, it's uh, very possible for me to say things, to make statements, to be preaching, and you know me, I get, I get pretty passionate, and last week was a pretty tough sermon, actually, uh, for me to give, and I'm guessing probably for you to listen to. I would suspect there's some things that uh, you didn't like that I said, or maybe it didn't feel too good. Uh, anyway, I was just made aware of that there's times when, when I say things that uh, maybe is received in a way that uh, uh, is painful or hurts and, and doesn't, doesn't feel good. And I don't, I'm not necessarily talking about like when I'm sharing truth, but just that it doesn't, doesn't sit real well. And um, I just want you to know I, that's not my intention. I, I, please come. I, this, this is what happened. This is how I got made aware of this. Is, just, just talk to me. I, uh, let me know. It's not my desire to bring pain above what the Holy Spirit does. <laughs> I, he's well capable of doing those things. And there's one thing I've learned, you all know this. In our human relationships, we have such a tendency to hurt each other with the things we say, even when we don't mean it that way, right? And sometimes, it, you know, we get in this game of whether it's the, the fault of the sayer or the fault of the hearer. And the reality is it's both, right? We both, both sides come with background and experiences and things that come into that whatever you heard or whatever was said. And uh, I guess I just, I, I want to just commit to uh, telling you, like, I, please, if you start thinking that I said something that was directed at you, I'll just be blunt. If you start saying that I, if you start feeling like I said something that, that, that is directed at you and it begins to fester pain in your life, please, please don't let it just sit there and fester. Just come talk to me. I, I can assure you it's not my intention to hurt you. It's not my intention to make you feel bad. It is my desire for every one of us to walk faithfully to Jesus. The second thing that I want to say uh, is that I think it fits in so well with, the, with the, the book of Nehemiah, the topic we preached, I preached on last week and we wrestled with and the broken down walls. And, and, and Merlin, you touched on it this morning. You talk about the reason that young people leaving the church is because of hypocrisy. And to me, all that is is the fact that we proclaim something when we're in church or proclaim something to the rest of the world and then we're just as worldly as the rest of them. That's what hypocrisy is, right? We proclaim that we're different, that Jesus has done something for us, that, that we're somehow superior or different or that we have this answer because Jesus is the answer. It's not that that part's wrong. It's that then we are just as worldly as everyone else around us and that's called hypocrisy. But in keeping with uh, what is, we're going to read in this text this morning, in keeping with what the book of Nehemiah is about, I'd like to take it even a step further. Uh, I know it may be limited somewhat in scope here this morning because if you're young people here, then uh, uh, you're here, maybe you're here because you have to be and you don't want to be, but for the most part, you, you, you're here, at, I mean, you, you're not one of these people that's not in church because of this. Uh, but young people, listen up. You know, usually when a pastor says something, a preacher says something like that, you're probably thinking to yourself, oh no, here comes something he's going to pick on that yeah, we do that he wants to get our attention. But listen up. It's worth me saying up here this morning, 
it's shameful how true that is that our hypocrisy has driven away people from the church. And we have to say we're sorry about that. If you're a young person sitting here this morning, I want you to know that I'm sorry that people in my generation and people in our age have driven you away from the faith because we've been hypocritical. That we have proclaimed things from here or proclaimed things to you because you're in our families and our life hasn't been any different than anybody else's. Please forgive us. We desperately want you. I, I love seeing all you kids up here. And we desperately need you in our church. We won't make it. And that's not just a, that's not just a like, basic duh statement. We won't make it if you're not here. But we really won't. The church won't. We won't make it if you're not here. I'm going to get to this in what we read in our text today. But there's something that I have never been able to move aside. I'm going to say it this, I mean, this, this morning. It's part of the text. But I've never been able to move aside when I look at the godly people in the Bible. And that's that they take ownership for things that I know they didn't do. And yet, they confess it. I'm getting ahead of myself. But you, you know... We hate confessing things, right? We hate confessing things because it means we're wrong. It means that we admit that we didn't get it right. We run away from confession and the, and the awful irony of that is confession is the gateway by which we're made right with the Lord. So not only do we not confess at all the things that are in our lives, but I just, I look around in my own heart, I look around at people around us and I... We don't ever see people that are willing to take ownership for anything that's not theirs. When there's broken walls, that community doesn't come apart at that point either. And it's all of our responsibility. The onus is on all of us. Again, we're not, we're not there. We're not even going to get there this morning. But that is so clear to me in the book of Nehemiah that I, I, don't, I, I don't think I'll be able to emphasize it enough. We are such American Christians that everything is if it's not my fault then you have to deal with it it's your problem not mine and that is not what I see in the book of Nehemiah in the book of the Bible itself in the book of Nehemiah that's not what I see if we want things to change in our churches it is on us us to do it we have to do it we have to be willing to step up and look at lung people in the eyes and say I'm sorry that we have been horrible examples to you of how Jesus changes our lives because if our life doesn't appear changed, why would I think you're going to follow in those footsteps? That was, that's getting far ahead of myself, and so I want to read the text this morning. Join me in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 4. We pick up on the fact that uh, Nehemiah has inquired of his brother Hanani uh, of what the uh, state of the remnants and the state of the city of Jerusalem is, and has just been told that there is great trouble and shame in, uh, in the city and with the people because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And in verse 4, we read this immediately. As soon as I, and Nehemiah shifts into first person, 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. He's referring to himself every time he says your servant. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he tells us who the, this man is that he's referring to. Now I was cupbearer to the king. I mentioned this before, but now we get confirmation of the fact that he is cupbearer to the king, uh, Artaxerxes. He is, his, uh, he is his man who tests things before he will partake in food or drink. Let's jump in. The title, this, uh, this part of the, of the text here, Nehemiah's Prayer, and that's right where we jump in. The very first verse, he says, as soon as I heard what the state of these people were, the state of the, of the city was, as soon as I heard that, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let me just stop right there. Let you stop right there and pay attention. We cannot move but 30 seconds into this message and realize that already he is putting us to the test. Already there are words here in God's word in the book of Nehemiah that are, for, for my take, that are incriminating to us. For example, last week when I preached this message about the trouble and shame that we are in today, and maybe you say I missed some things, maybe you say I nailed some things, maybe you say I was off base, maybe you say I'm, I'm negative about it, maybe you say I don't know what you say about all that stuff, but certainly you will agree that some of what I said has some truth, right? I hope you will give me that much. That a little bit of what I said has some truth. Let me ask you, what was your response to that? How did you respond? How did you act? What did you do this week? Now, this is an unfair question to me because I knew before this week that this is the next text. Now, you, to be honest, you did too because you can read the Bible as well as I can. Hopefully you do. What did you do last week if, I, if as I think what happened is the Holy Spirit began to impress upon us the places that we have broken down walls, the places where our gates are burned, what was our reaction? What I'm driving at is, when's the last time that you were driven to weeping and mourning and fasting and praying because of a broken down wall that you see in the church or in your family or in your personal life? Or if that's a little too narrow, I can broaden it out. When's the last time you had that kind of response to anything? 
And to that, I think we ought to all say a big ouch. <laughs> Maybe it's commentary on what I said last week. Is this not a giant gaping hole in our wall when we don't care about these things? When we have, it doesn't bother us. Or we hear it and we're affected. Oh, that's awful. And we live life just the same way the very next day. Nothing changes. I hate to say it. I mean, I'm squashing myself hugely here this morning just as, long as, or as well as you. But maybe that's why we're being seen as hypocritical. Because we can rail and talk about all the awful stuff that's out there. But you know what? I got up. I didn't once fast this week. I didn't once weep or mourn. I didn't once pay time, give my time or attention to say, God of heaven, this is worth me changing the, what, what I do with my daily life. It's worth me being sad about. It's worth me being visibly affected by the fact that there's trouble and shame somewhere with people that I love and people that I care about. Lord, forgive us for being so uncaring about what grieves your heart, God. I'm telling you, I told you this ahead of time, and I'm telling you again, this is going to get real. Like, we are going to be faced. We are being faced with a choice. And it's, it is this real. We're being faced with a choice. We are either going to acknowledge what God says in his word and say, I am way off base and I have to change things, or we're going to just keep on going, which is hardening our heart to the Holy Spirit, and we can expect nothing better in our future. Nothing different. In fact, I suggest we'll, we'll only expect worse. Our church will disintegrate and crumble even more. And I could say that maybe about our specific church, but the church in general, our families, we will see it disintegrate more. Unless you and I are willing to pay the price in prayer, we will not see the biblical value of families restored in our nation. It's not going to happen. I, I, I hope you know this. Like, I'm up here and I'm really passionate about it, and it maybe feels like I'm like yelling at you guys about this. I am with you in your seats. Until and unless we are willing to pay the price through prayer, it's not going to change. I can rail all I want about how society has broken down our, our families and how all the homosexual marriages has ruined it and how all this stuff is due to fatherlessness and all. I can rail about it, and you can say, well, Merlin, that's not true in your family, but look at what Nehemiah prays. I'm confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we've sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Even I. Now, do you think Nehemiah was guilty of anything causing trouble and shame in Jerusalem? Do you think he had any responsibility at all for the broken down walls and the burned gates? You might say, well, he was part way back then, maybe. I suspect the kind of man we see in Nehemiah that I, we probably would be all pretty hard-pressed to put any of that blame on him. And yet, what do we see? What does he say? And yet, 
while he's in the winter uh, citadel, the winter castle of the foreign king who is the most part of the, 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 the leader of the most powerful empire in the world at the time, and he's there, and he's miles and miles away from that city, and he's miles and miles away from those people, he, he could say, well, that's too bad, and go right on doing what he's doing. Instead, he says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I fasted, and I continued praying, and I continued praying, and I continued praying, and I continued praying. We see this attitude picked up in Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you, spoken to God, have fallen on me. This is the attitude we see in Nehemiah, is it not? Zeal for God's house and a recognition that as one of God's people, if anyone is bringing reproach to God, it's putting reproach on him. Perhaps the more pertinent verse for us today is this question that Jesus asked in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, or when he comes, will he find faith on earth? You know, when, well, may I just ask that question. When did he ask that question? On the heels of what did he ask that question? What had he just said? What had he just taught? What had he just brought to the disciples? Anyone know? I, I didn't, I, yeah, what would you say? Yes, Luke says, and Jesus told them this story to teach them that they ought to always pray and never lose heart. And he goes on to say there was an old widow, and she had the cause for injustice. She kept going to this judge, and the judge was neither God-fearing, and he didn't fear anybody. He didn't care one bit. He kept just turning away, turning away, turning away. Yet she kept coming day after day after day after day after day. And finally, he said, this woman is going to drive me crazy. This is my paraphrase a bit. He's, he's, she's going to wear me down. And finally, he gives her justice, though he didn't care about God and didn't care about her at all. And he says, if that's how it is there, don't you think your father is much more willing to listen to the intercessory prayers of his people? And then he asks this, but the problem is not that God is not listening. The God, problem is not that God is not willing or that God doesn't have his, his in control of things. The problem is when Jesus returns, is he going to find anybody that has faith still? In other words, is he going to find anybody that's still even praying like that? Ongoing, continuing, Nehemiah kind of prayer for things that are causing trouble and shame in our families, in our churches, in our nation, in our personal lives. There's a lot about prayer in this text that, of course, goes without saying. Pretty much the entire text I read to you was Nehemiah's prayer. And there's a lot in it. And it's worth looking at, we'll move to that prayer part now, it's worth looking at the words that he says on its own. Remember, we're reading this as a historical document, so uh, there's enough to look at just on the words of what he says. He says, oh God, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he goes on and he lays out his prayer request and he confesses sin. I've already referred to that. He's confessing sin. He's, he's, uh, he's pointing some things out to God that he's aware of. He's asking God for some things. And, but I want to I stop with the verse I have up here for just a little bit. Again, it's helpful for us to kind of take a peek at some of the words that are in 
these, these things. Th things that just slip by. For example, when I highlighted this word up there, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. God keeps his covenant. And he goes on to say he does that with people who love him and keep his commandments, the people that keep God's commandments. This word keep is an interesting word. It's the word shamar, Hebrew word shamar. You don't need to know that word necessarily. I didn't even put it up there. I don't think I put it on your handout. I don't know what I did with that for sure. But you don't need to know it necessarily other than the word shamar means to hedge about or to protect something. So like picture building a fence around something. Or, ironically enough, picture a wall around a city is there to shamar, to protect it, or to hedge about it, or to keep it, contain it. Interesting, right? That in Nehemiah's prayer, uh, bringing the need of the broken down walls physically in Jerusalem, he uses this word that, he, that means that, that same thing, that protection. He says, God, you keep your covenant. You protect it. You hold on to it. Those who will do that with your commandments. Much of his prayer, by the way, if you look through it, he keeps coming back to it's the people who aren't doing that. And when, when God said already that when, you're not, when we're not going to do that, we're not going to keep his commandments or keep his rules or his statutes or do any of those things, then you'll be scattered. He walks through what for us is a little mini history lesson. Now, just, I mean, you know the answer to this, but let me just ask you anyway. Rhetorical question. This little history lesson that Nehemiah gives in his prayer was that for God's sake so that God would remember what happened? That God knew what was going on? Was it for his sake? If it wasn't for God's sake, then for whose sake was it? Whose sake was it that Nehemiah said those things? His own sake, right? Let's... Let's spend some time with his prayer. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to, there's plenty of good stuff in the prayer itself, but for our purposes today, I think we're just as interested in looking at what we can glean from the prayer for us than we are in the actual content. You know the story of the people of Israel. If you know this, if you've read through First and Second Kings and Chronicles, you know the downward trajectory. You know how God began back with Moses and warned them, if you follow me and obey my commands, then this is what's going to happen. There's blessing there. If you don't, then this is what's going to happen. And we saw that happen, and we know historically where we're at. So we know all those things. So I'm interested in spending our time for the rest of the time today in looking at this prayer and saying, what can we learn about prayer that may be helpful for us. These are application things. So if you're in the mood or ready or paying attention to saying, what does this have, text have to say to me today? Well, here's the rest of the message. I want to first, I already mentioned some of these things. So, and this is not brain, this is not like, what, what's the phrase? Not brain, not brain surgery or rocket science. I was going to combine those two together. It didn't make sense. But anyway, it, it, this is just looking at the text and seeing what we find there. I'm, I'm not telling you stuff that you couldn't unearth yourself. I hope when you've read through this text, you've unearthed some of these things but I think it's worth reminding ourselves, these are some of the things that we see. And then, if we're going to be real about it, to say, do I find these things anywhere in my prayers? So have this in the back of your head. Think of yourself when you pray. You do pray, right? So think of yourself when you pray and see now I want to be careful. Like this is not like the only place we read about prayer in the Bible, so it's not like every prayer ever. Other looks like this, 
But there's a lot of similarities we're going to find if we would look for them. And there's a lot of things that uh, are, are principles for us to recognize in our own prayer. So just lay it up next to yours and say, how many times does my prayer look like this? So let's get into this. The externals of the prayer. We're not going to spend a lot of time with this because I already did a little bit. But I, I'm, I am curious about this. Are you ever weeping when you're praying? Is there ever mourning, like, and you may think, well, those are the same things, but they're not, right? Like, weeping is the physical thing that's going on. Mourning is, there's times when you can mourn without weeping. There's times you can weep without really mourning, actually. Actually, did you know that uh, if you have children, you realize this, that there's a really clear difference between that because sometimes when your kids get caught doing something they shouldn't and they're, they don't like the punishment, they're afraid of that, there's weeping, right? There's tears, but there's not actually a whole lot of mourning going on, meaning they're not really sorry for what they've done. What you're after is true repentance, which is the mourning part. So they, they, they must be said together. They must they go together. But is there weeping? Is, when we're praying, is there ever weeping? And I know some of us are more emotional than others. You know that about me, right? I get up here did it this morning. I get all teared up and I get all emotional. Not everybody's like that, and that's okay. Except for it does indicate a deep moving of something inside of us. And I might suggest to us that if we are not ever in those places, that we might want to consider, we might want to just acknowledge that perhaps I have some growing that I could do in really caring about God and about God's people and about a situation I find myself in or that my family finds itself in or that my church finds itself in or that the church broadly finds itself in or that our nation, you know where I'm going, it's just you can keep going with that. Weeping and mourning and fasting. Boy, there's one. I, I, I don't know about you, but I struggle with this one. I really like food. I tend to eat a lot. This is a tough one for me. I'm guessing I'm probably not the only one that this is a tough one for. But how often are we willing to deny ourselves sort of the basic things that we need in an effort to say, God, I'm serious about this. This really is affecting me. It's not just like, oh, I'll pray for you. That's, that's a really bad deal. And then 10 minutes later, we've totally forgotten about it. Which, let's be honest, we do that a lot, don't we? It's one of the reasons I encourage you to pray for people on the spot. When people ask for prayer requests, pray for them right then. Because there's a really high degree of likelihood that you're going to walk away and forget about it in half an hour. Unfortunate truth about us. But are there things that capture our attention? And I'm not going to tell you what those things have to be. I shared some things last week, sort of broad strokes and some specifics. But are there things that affect you deep enough that it changes your daily life? It changes what you're doing. It's worth you saying, I'm going to set time aside and I'm going to mourn about this. I'm, I'm concerned about this. I'm going to skip a meal or two or three or whatever it may be that you have to skip. I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray. I'm not just going to be thinking about it and stewing about it up here. I'm going to pray. There's something about praying, right? Prayer is taking something to, as Nehemiah says, the Lord God of heaven. And can I tell you, can I remind you, church, there is no better place to take those things. In fact, there is no other place to take those things, but we do it all the time anyway. But there is no better place to take the things that are burdening us than to the God of heaven. He is far above. Did you hear what he said? He said, by the way, well, if, you, if you disobey me and I scatter you to the uttermost parts of the heaven, even there, as the psalmist would say, 
your right hand will find me. Even there, you, I can't get away from you, right? He says, even there, I can bring you back to the place where my presence dwells. Again, illuminating the lie that Satan tells us all the time, that you can do something sinful enough that God can never reach you and bring you back. Not true. If God says, I could send you to the uttermost part of heaven and bring you back when, you begin, when your heart turns, then I suggest to us, that's the place we should take our needs to. That's the person we should take our needs to, right? Because he is the God of heaven. All right, let's look at some of the components that make up this prayer, these pr the, the prayer that uh, Nehemiah offers. And again, it's not, about, it's not about a formula that we reproduce. But it's about recognizing, and you'll find these things. Uh, if I talk about this this morning, and you look at other prayers in Scripture, which would be a good project for you, you look at other prayers in Scripture, and see how many times you can find these things, these, these, these themes, these components pop up in other godly people's prayers. And then again, the, the end result of all that has to be, are you willing to look at your own prayer and say, is it ever part of my prayer? Is this what my prayer looks like? Well, first of all, it has to be said, he begins with praise, right? He, he begins by saying, the great and awesome God, Lord God of heaven, you're the mighty one. You're the one that keeps your commandments. You're the one that shamars. You're the one that hedges about. You're the one that protects. You're the one. You're the one. You're the one. And I can tell you when we praise, it automatically does what should be the first thing that should happen in prayer, and that's take the attention off of me, off of you, off of us. So much of our prayer is hindered through self-focus. Through being concerned just about me, 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 me. The best antidote, the best answer for that is to spend liberal amounts of time praising God. Trust me, if you will, and I will sincerely spend time praising God, we are the farthest thing in our mind when we begin to bring requests and things to Him. Because if we've done that accurately enough or adequately enough, we will recognize that God is so far bigger than any of us. Right? We are like David who says, who am I that you even care about me? I'm a blip. I'm a worm. I'm, 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 I'm a little tiny microscopic dot in the middle of a little ball in the middle of a humongous galaxy that you created, God. I think, I, maybe I shouldn't say stuff like this because I, I, I tend to be, I'm, I'm, this is where my kids get all their drama, their, their, their dramatic stuff. But I think that Perhaps one of the greatest affronts we can give to God, the greatest offenses we can give to God is to come to Him in prayer and presume that we are so important and that we matter so much. I'm going to be careful saying that because He does say that He loves us with an everlasting love, right? He commands His angels over us. He weeps over us. He exalts over us with loud singing. We matter to God. I'm not trying to diminish that. I'm trying to get us to see how tiny we are next to the amazing, almighty creator, God. Praise. It needs to be part of our prayers because it puts us in the right, right perspective. By the way, also if we do praise right, it is like, there's, there's, there's no doubt, there's no, there's no chance that confession, the second one, won't happen. <laughs> right? Because when I begin to understand how incredible God is and I begin to realize how not incredible I am, it, it just has to come out of my mouth, right? God, I need you so desperately. I'm lost without you. And confession for us, I think if we have specific things that the Holy Spirit will confess, uh, will, will, is convicting us on, we absolutely need to confess specifically. But even in general, there's not a prayer you could ever utter that doesn't need, require the general confession of, God, you're the one who's high and lifted up. 
I'm the one who is desperate and needy. I'm the one who needs your mercy. I'm the one who needs your tender care. I'm the one who needs your paying attention to my need, to what I have going on. Always part of confession. By the way, if you ever want to, uh, if you're not really sure what to say during these parts, I do this when I do discipleship with, with uh, one-on-one discipleship with people. If you're never sure what to do during these parts, if you're thinking, why do you want to praise more, then just ask God that question, like, what, what, what do I have to praise you for? And then you have to be quiet, right? Because most of our prayers, let's be honest, most of our prayer times, it's mostly us doing this. We don't do a whole lot of listening always. So ask God and then be quiet and listen for a bit, and he'll remind you of the reasons you have to praise him. If you're really feeling brave, ask him on the second one here. If you're not sure if there's something you should confess, ask him. God, is there something I should confess to you today? Is there something that's not right in my life? But you should be warned that God loves that. And God is faithful. And when we press and draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And his Holy Spirit, it says, yes, that's what I, one of my reasons I exist in you is to make you aware of things that need to be changed. And then he'll remind you. And then, of course, now we have the duty unless we're going to harden our heart against the Holy Spirit and quench him, we have the duty to confess that and say, oh, God, I don't want that. That's why I say you must be brave to do that. But we need brave people, don't we? We need people who look more like Nehemiah and less like us. I don't know, what's the phrase I should use? Us spiritually fat and lazy, want to cruise through life and do nothing out of the ordinary. Don't bother me. It doesn't matter that much to me, Christians. I'm, I'm, please understand, I'm not, trying to be, I'm not trying to be critical of you or I'm not trying to be uh, harsh towards any of us. I, did, I already made this point, so I want to I just say it again. Wait till my son finds his home. But here's a leadership t- uh, tip that we can take away from, uh, from the book of Nehemiah. I told you I'm going to put some focus and emphasis on uh, things he teaches about, about being a good godly leader. And here's one of them. I mentioned it when I talked about uh, he confessed sin. That was not really his own. But I see that a godly leader takes responsibility for mistakes, whether they were his mistake or not, or her mistake, whatever you want to say about that, whether they were their mistake or not, committed personally by them. Again, we live in a culture. This is, this is, this is countercultural, but it's biblical. We live in a culture that does everything we possibly can to remove burden and guilt from us. It's always someone else's fault. It's always someone else I can blame. There's always uh, someone else who is at greater fault or someone else that, there's always some reason, some justification I have. There's always, there's always, it's always somebody else. We, we squirm away from any kind of responsibility on anything if we at all can. So I see that not only is this, I mean, this is just a good Christian principle, but it is a godly leader. A, 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 a person who uh, presumes to have authority and responsibility over people will take, respo- will take that responsibility for the good and for the negative, for the, uh, for the mistakes, the sins. Let's keep moving. There's something really interesting and important that happens in Nehemiah's prayer. We see him declaring truth. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, and I kind of asked the question, who was he doing that for? But we see him declaring truth. Do you notice what he's doing? He comes through here and he says, he says, we have sinned. And then he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Like, God doesn't need this reminder, right? Like, God knows this. It's, this, is not for, this is not for God. But he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But then he gets to the part he really wants to remind God of and remind himself of and leading to his prayer request. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, God said, then no matter where the outcasts are spread to or scattered to, I will bring them back. Remember, God, that you said that? Remember that's what you're like? Remember you promised that whenever we turn back to you, you will come and you will bring us back. You'll restore us. Remember, God, you said that? He's declaring truth. Now, this is really, really important because we tend, I mean, God created us emotional beings and, and, and we have emotions. There's nothing wrong with those. We should have them. It's a, it's, a, it's a very natural part of who we are. But we tend to be led by our emotions too much. We look at the surrounding stuff. We look at what's happening, whatever it may be, and we tend to be led by our emotions too much. This is why it's critical for us to declare truth in our prayers. It grounds us. It hems us in. It keeps our emotions from ruling the day and to say, this is how I feel if you're Nehemiah, by the way, and you're in Susa, and you hear that miles and miles and miles and miles and kilometers for them probably away, that, uh, that, uh, that the city is in despair and ruins, and you know that there's probably not a whole lot you can do about it, although you may think, have this beginning idea that you're going to try, but you, you know there's probably not a whole lot you can do about that, and it seems so far out there, and it probably seems pretty discouraging, hopeless. It's a good time to remind yourself, hey, God, you said this. You said that when we sin and walk away from you, we'll be scattered. That's why I'm where I'm at right now, God. But you also said if we turn back to you and begin to obey you again, you will bring us back. I don't know how you can do that. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't feel like it's possible, but it's what you said. We need to be a lot more in the habit of declaring the truth from God's word in our prayers. Again, not for God's sake. He knows all those things. For our sake. For us to be reminded, for us to be grounded, for us to know that we are to be led by our faith and not by our feelings. I see in his prayer, and this is no surprise, that Nehemiah gives a specific request. As he's bringing this history lesson about, as he's reminding God, as he's declaring this truth, he's, he's aiming towards a specific request. God, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. So apparently there was more than just Nehemiah praying this prayer. Uh, at least he was going on that, on that assumption either right with him or he was assuming that people in Jerusalem were doing it. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Give your servant success he gives a specific prayer request. Now, you might say it wasn't completely specific because he could have said, you know, have the king do such and such and such for me. He doesn't get that specific. But we're going to see some things that he gets a little more specific even, uh, even later on. I, I want to I just point out to us, we tend to, we tend to pray a lot in general terms. I know it's because it feels a lot safer for us, Right? Because if I pray very specifically and God doesn't do that, then to us it feels like it's a knock on our faith and, it's, and, and it, it, it felt like a failure. Maybe it was, and it, it, it's a lot safer to be a lot more general. But I'd like to flip that around and encourage us to recognize that it is also almost impossible to build our faith in a faithful God when all we do is pray generally. Because when we do that, how will we know if God answered how will we know that God came through? If I say, God, would you bless my day today? And I get to the end of the day, how am I going to know if God did that? I'm guessing I had some good things. I'm guessing I had some bad things happen to me. Was God faithful? Or is it just how time went through and the day happened? That's just what happened. 
You see how I'm, that doesn't really build my faith. If, on the other hand, I know that I'm struggling with losing control of my temper, and I say in the morning, God, can you help me by your Holy Spirit to not lose my temper today? I will know at the end of the day whether God answered that prayer, won't I? Because I either lost my temper or I didn't. You see, we don't like to get so specific because we know that sometimes it doesn't happen. And we think, oh, that means God doesn't love me or that I wasn't full of faith enough. Or I don't know what the reasons you're going to pick out or what Satan's going to say to you. But I want to encourage us to flip that around and say, we also cannot have our faith built in a God who is completely trustworthy and faithful to us if we're not willing to say, this is what I really need, God. This right here. I need you. Of course, we can take lessons from Jesus. He prayed things like, not my will, but yours. He recognized that, that God's will supersedes ours, and we should do the same thing when we ask him for specific things. But again, I have this sense that it's a bit of an affront to an almighty God who is very specific and very detailed in many respects in our lives. And when we come to him and say, God, I need your help, but we're not willing to acknowledge exactly how that is. I have a bit of a sense that's a bit of an offense to God. Really? You really claim that you think I'm all-powerful and there's nothing that's impossible for me, and yet you won't even come right out and say what you really want or need, what the, what the real thing is that you're after? I see in Nehemiah a willingness to be specific. Again, we'll get to a few more things down the road, and I think it should be for us too. Uh, we, should, we should learn. And it's not that you can't, I mean, I, I'm making maybe sound like you should never pray generally. Obviously, there's plenty of times when you do offer general prayer requests, and that's how it is. That's how it has to be. Sometimes we don't have more information. Sometimes we don't know more about it. I would encourage us to be willing to at least, uh, when we're praying general kinds of prayer requests, to ask the Holy Spirit, is there anything specific that I should be saying about this situation? And again, you have to be quiet for a little bit, and you have to listen. Maybe he'll give you something. Maybe he won't. I'm not. It's not a sin to pray generally. I hope you understand that. I just, I, I, I emphasize what I did because I think we are too often only praying generally and not specifically. Well, there's one big thing I want to say, and we kind of alluded to it already. I kind of came to it already. But there's one thing that I think we have to notice about Nehemiah's prayer, and that it's chock full of Scripture. There are, by my count, and I didn't count all of them. I'm sure there's more. But there are, by my count, at least 15 specific references to Old Testament Scripture. Most of it Deuteronomy, but there's some other places thrown in there too. Specific Old Testament Scripture that Nehemiah would have known that he refers to directly in his prayer. He uses, I mean, even, I'm thinking of just like phrases like, you know, God of heaven, but the one who keeps his commandment. You obviously refer to Scripture about remember your word, but there are at least 15 that I could dig out of here to say, here's specific references to Scripture that Nehemiah is praying. I think that should tell us there's something important about that. That when we come to God who inspired this word for us and we want to pray according to his will and we want him to hear our prayers and we want him to move and be attentive to them, we want his mercy in our lives, that the best chance for praying according to God's will is to pray his word back to him. It's a challenge for us. It's a stretch for us because maybe we don't know his word well enough to be able to do that. Or maybe we're too busy consumed with the things we want to ask and just want to give God this checklist. Because a lot of these references were not in the specific request side of things, but it was in the 
keeping your emotions in, under control and in reminding myself of the truth of God and in recognizing the position I have towards God and all those things, that's where the scripture references came in, a lot of them. But here's what I really want to ask you. Because i got to wrap this up. What are, if Nehemiah could find in a matter of just about, I don't know, seven or eight verses, just a couple of sentences, if Nehemiah could find in that prayer 15 specific, at least 15 specific references to Scripture, what are the Scripture references that you and I need to know and be willing to pray with regards to the places our walls are broken down? We covered those last week. You're going to be hearing them about tonight. I'll tell you a little bit about this here in just a bit. But, but you're going to be hearing about that tonight. You're going to be participating in that tonight. So what are, the, what are the scriptures? I'm thinking especially New Testament scriptures because we're New Testament Christians. But what are the New Testament scriptures? What is the word of God that's important for us to be able to have come back out of our prayer times when we're praying to God and saying, you've got to help us fix these walls. You've got to help us build them back up. You've got to help us restore these gates. You've got to help us get rid of this trouble and shame. We are in desperate need of your help, God. And here's why. And here's what you said you would do. And here's how you would say you'd do it. And this is the mechanism. This is how. This is the who. This. What are those things? I hope your brain is already going. I hope you will spend time this afternoon thinking about it because tonight, uh, just as the Lord would arrange things, I love when he does, just as the Lord would arrange things, we have a prayer night scheduled. And when we got to this place in Nehemiah and uh, Chris and I were talking, we said, it makes perfect sense. We just spent last week talking about the places that our walls are broken down. And I'm hoping that there's a few of us at least that have some concern about that that don't want those things to be true, that want to change that situation about our church, about our families, but about the broader church too. And then to recognize that if Nehemiah's first response was to pray about it, then we should not think we have any other first response out of it that we should do. It's not about drumming up and saying, well, here's how you rebuild the wall. I'll give you step A, one, two, three, four, five, and let's get, this, get this program in place. It's about the fact that if God is not involved by a spirit which is called upon through prayer by us, it ain't gonna happen. So we need to pray. So tonight, I hope you come back tonight. Tonight, 6 o'clock, we're going to have a prayer service here. And we're going to be spending time talking about the things or focusing on praying about the things that, we, that I shared in the message a week ago. We're going to bring them back out. We're going to, you're going to get a chance to interact with them. I don't know if you've been thinking about them. I hope you've been thinking about them. But more importantly, we're going to pray about them. And I would like to see these things that we talked about in Nehemiah's prayer be true. The externals, perhaps... But the components of that, that when we come, we're positioned correctly, that we recognize uh, who we're coming to and that we should come to him. And confession, you know, if there's broken down walls, there's a, there's a reason somewhere and we have to own up to it. And you might say, well, that's not my problem. That's Let's be very careful. It is one of the places that we are no longer community if we're not willing to be responsible for the sins of our brothers and sisters. Now, I'm not, please, my theology, I hope my theology, it's not messed up here. You're not going to go to hell for someone else's sins. Please understand me. But if I'm not willing to walk alongside my brothers and sisters and weep with them, weep for them, and own up to the, th let's be honest, it's not just them, right? <laughs> the whole point about this is it's not just them. Our hearts have gone astray too. There's not a one of us here who's been perfectly faithful towards God. Can I just make that clear? Confession. Declaring the truth of who God is and what he has said and using that word to bring about our prayer requests. God, may your ear be attentive to our prayers. Give mercy to us. We need you. If you don't share, shed your mercy on us, those gaping holes in our walls are just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Let's pray this morning. Lord, thank you. As always, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it does in and through us. And I say that word, thank you, even though, again, this morning for me, you're stepping on my toes. You're, 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 you're incriminating me. You're, you're revealing to me the lack of love I have for the church, the body of Christ, for brothers and sisters. You're revealing to me the lack of love I have for you, devotion towards you, that I am affected by the things that burden your heart, the things that grieve you, the places you see trouble and shame and help us to see it, and I just go through my week and like, huh, it's no big deal. It's a problem for someone to solve, but it's not my problem. Forgive me, Father. Forgive us. I pray, God, that you would bring the pieces that are necessary for us as you're giving this, uh, this choice to us, bring the pieces that are necessary to us, to our minds, to the Holy Spirit, of where we need to go, what we need to do, how we approach this, what needs to change, what we have to, to, to reroute or to, to redo. And in all those things, I pray for your abundant grace to be poured out. For I know that not only uh, does the enemy want to confound this process and confuse it, I know it's difficult enough just for us because we're fleshly, we're human, we're selfish, we're full of pride. We don't want to admit wrong and we don't want to help each other. So I pray that your abundant grace will be poured out, that we can be uh, among those people in your body that say, we want authentic, sincere change in our lives, led by the Holy Spirit, because of what Jesus has done, because of how he has set me free from sin and myself. Help me, help us to die to ourselves. Pick up our cross, follow you. But may it begin with a growing desire to follow after you. Captivate our hearts, God. If, they're not, if we're not there, captivate our hearts, God. Give us the grace that our hearts may be captivated. Give us the faith to step forward to say, I'm not in love enough with you, God, and I want that to change. I want to be consumed with a passion for you. You are the God of the universe. You are high and lifted up. You are holy. You are just. You are perfect. You are pure. You are righteous. You are loving you were compassionate. You were faithful. You were good. You were all those things and more. Words that I can't even put together to say all those things. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us, guiding us, leading us, forgiving us, your Holy Spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.